This morning's uh, scripture reading is Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. I'll be reading from the Common English Bible. Look, my servant will succeed. He will be exalted and lifted very high. Just as many were appalled by you, he too appeared disfigured, inhuman, his appearance unlike that of mortals. But he will astonish many nations. Kings will be silenced because of him, because they will see what they haven't seen before. What they haven't heard before, they will ponder. Who can believe what we have heard? And for whose sake has the Lord's arm been revealed? He grew up like a young plant before us, like a root from dry ground. He possessed no splendid form for us to see, no desirable appearance. He was despised and avoided by others, a man who suffered, who knew sickness well. Like someone from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we didn't think about him. It was certainly our sickness that he carried, and our sufferings that he bore. But we thought him afflicted, struck down by God and tormented. He was pierced because of our rebellions, and crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole. By his wounds we are healed. Like sheep we had all wandered away, each going its own way. But the Lord let fall on him all our crimes. He was oppressed and tormented, but he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb being brought to slaughter, like a ewe silent before her shearers, he didn't open his mouth. Due to an unjust ruling, he was taken away. And his fate? Who will think about it? He was eliminated from the land of the living, struck dead because of my people's rebellion. His grave was among the wicked, his tomb with evildoers, though he had done no violence and had spoken nothing false. But the Lord wanted to crush him and to make him suffer. If his life is offered as restitution, he will see his offspring. He will enjoy long life. The Lord's plans will come to fruition through him. After his deep anguish, he will see light, and he will be satisfied. Through his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous and will bear their guilt. Therefore, I will give him a share of the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong. In return for exposing his life to death and being numbered with the rebels, though he carried the sin of many and pleaded on behalf of those who rebelled. Please pray with me as we approach God's word this morning. God, you have appeared and acted in the world as nothing we ever imagined or expected. We pray that this morning, wherever we are, sitting in darkness or in doubt or in discouragement, you would astonish us again with hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week we, we began a conversation about one of the kind of hot topics you hear in the cultural water these days, um, the topic of justice. And I mentioned as we began this series on justice that, you know, the thing about this topic is I don't know anybody in the world who is actually anti-justice. Like, everybody's pro-justice in theory. But the problem is we have disagreements among ourselves on what justice actually means. 
Like, what do we owe each other? What do we owe God? So we began the series last week with a kind of overview of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. What what is the kind of picture of justice as God imagines justice in Scripture? And and I highlighted a couple of things that both Old Testament and New Testament seem to agree on really clearly when it comes to justice. Um, Number one, you love God by acting in just right relationships with other people. God's love language is justice. If, if, if you want to know, like, what does God want for God's birthday? What would make God's heart happy? That is us showing justice toward each other. Num- number two, the, the kind of minimum, if, if you think of, like, what is a minimum definition of justice, a, a minimum starting point of what we owe each other? Well, we owe each other honor as people who are made in the image of God. Right? That, that's the kind of rock-bottom foundation of all the Bible's justice conversations. Every person you've ever met is made in the image of God and therefore owed a basic level of honor as objects of God's care. And, and the third thing we mentioned that both Testaments seem to really clearly agree about is that God has a special concern for the poor and the vulnerable. Like there, there is a special concern in God's heart for the people the rest of the world ignores or crushes. Like, those kind of themes within the basic definition of justice spread pretty consistently all the way through the Bible. Um, But I know that some of you out there are are more like the rational skeptics, and you might have been listening to me last week and thinking to yourself, Pastor Megan, you are actually not fairly representing the Old Testament picture of justice. Like, everything you said might be true, but the thing is, the Old Testament is not just concerned with what justice requires, but also what should happen to people who fail to meet the requirement. In other words, a a big word we like to call punishment. Not just what does justice demand, but what's going to happen if you fail to meet the demands of justice. So so in, in some place like Leviticus 19, you get a passage like this. Leviticus 19.13, you must not oppress your neighbors or rob them. Do not withhold a hired laborer's pay overnight. Keep going. You must not insult a deaf person or put an obstacle in front of a blind person that would cause them to trip. Instead, fear your God. I am the Lord. You must not act unjustly in a legal case. Don't show favoritism to the poor or deference to the great. You must judge your fellow Israelites fairly. Okay, you hear laws like this and you're like, yeah, right? Like that seems to represent kind of basic notions of how we understand justice. We can agree with the Old Testament on this. But if you read a few verses further into this same passage, what do you get? But another verse that says this, if anyone curses their father or mother, they must be executed. They have cursed their own father or mother. That person's blood is on their own heads, right? These are not separate passages. These passages work together in one comprehensive picture of justice in the Old Testament. Here are the things God wants. Here's the penalties that fall if you fail to live up to it. Another example in Deuteronomy is the example of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is, is the Jewish word for Saturday when the traditional practice is to not work. And in Deuteronomy 5, it says this about the Sabbath. Don't do any work on the Sabbath, not you or your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your oxen or your donkeys or any of your animals, or the immigrant who is living among you, so that your male and female servants can rest 
just like you. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and that's why the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath day. So here in Deuteronomy, we're told very clearly what is one of the major reasons why Israel practices a Sabbath? It's a justice reason. You used to be a slave who were forced to work every day, all day, dawn till dusk. Now that God has freed you, you are not to treat other people like you were treated as a slave. Everybody, no matter what they're ranking in society, no matter how much money they make, everybody is to be honored as fully human and given a time to rest every week. That is Sabbath justice. But if you look at Exodus, you also find out there's a penalty imposed if you fail to meet this justice standard. Exodus 31, 14, keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you and everyone who violates the Sabbath will be put to death. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath, that person will be cut off from the people. Okay, I think we're all getting the point here, right? Like Old Testament justice means both there is a standard applied for what you owe to God, what you owe to other people, and Old Testament justice demands that those who don't meet the standard be punished. The entire Old Testament covenant is based on this basic logic. The Old Testament is a covenant, it's agreement between God and Israel where God says, like, here's the things I want you to do. You know, worship me and me only, honor your parents, care for the poor. If you do all this stuff, I will bless you. If you don't, I will punish you and it will be awful. Like, that, that, that's the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament agreement in a nutshell. So when, when we look at that kind of conception of justice, I imagine most of us have somewhat mixed feelings. Right? There's some things the Old Testament says about justice that we're like, yeah, we could get on board with that. That seems right. But the Old Testament also has ideas of what justice requires about what you owe other people that may, maybe we're not fully on board with. I don't know a lot of people today who are super concerned with Sabbath as a justice matter. At least it doesn't come up much in conversation. And, and maybe even more to the point, there are some penalties the, the Old Testament imposes for being unjust that even if you're like pro-death penalty, you might have trouble getting on board with. I, I don't know any death penalty advocates who are super cool with the death penalty applied for dishonoring parents. But the one thing that we don't tend to dispute when we think of this conception of justice, we might have all sorts of problems with it, but the one thing we almost never think to dispute is the assumption that injustice has to be punished. Right? Almost all of us agree on that. If someone has caused significant harm to me or to somebody I care about, I don't want that person to just be able to get on with their life. I want that person to suffer in some way. That feels just to me. And maybe you're like a fundamentally nice, kind, gracious person and that doesn't resonate with you at all. Um, I used to cry when my brothers and sisters got punished. You know, some of us are like super sensitive to this stuff. But I tell you what, when I finally had an experience as an adult of going to another country and getting to sit and hear the stories of a group of women who had just suffered horrifying things at the hands of their male neighbors, people that I knew up the road, like, that was the first time in my life I experienced that raw, gut-level rage that comes from seeing just something profoundly wrong happen. And I was like, I want those men to pay. 
Like, it's not okay that they're just living their life in the, the house down the road, right? Like, you, you tend to get in touch with this kind of visceral feeling when something happens to someone you, you know or someone you love. And the, the Old Testament is full of these kind of promises to Israel, like, hey, Israel, the people who are doing violence against you, they are going to suffer. Like, God is going to make them pay, It's also full of promises to Israel that, hey, you guys who are doing injustice, you and Israel are going to suffer for that. This is how the criminal justice system in the modern world is also designed to function. When the criminal justice system sits down to ask, like, what should happen to this person, they're not only asking the question, how do we stop this crime from happening again? They're asking, how bad was it, and how much does this person deserve to pay? Like, how much suffering is it fair to inflict in exchange for the suffering that they caused? That is, like, perfectly rational, reasonable, universal, kind of basic human conceptions of what justice means. But if you look through the Old Testament, there is one passage in the Old Testament in particular that stands out as a total anomaly, And that passage is the one you just heard read this morning from Isaiah 53. This passage was actually so puzzling that even in the history of Israel prior to Jesus, when people were reading this passage, they literally sat around together and were like, what does this mean? Like, who is this passage talking about? What does this imply? Uh, You saw in the beginning of this passage in Isaiah 52, 15, the appearance of this mysterious figure that Isaiah says that this mysterious person is going to astonish kings. People are going to see something in him they've never seen before. Well, what are people going to see? Well, the covenant, this agreement that Israel had made with God, was that if they did bad things, they would be punished. And by this point in Israel's history, when Isaiah is speaking and writing, Israel has done all of the bad things they possibly could have done. Right? They broke the Sabbath, they oppressed the poor, they didn't care for their parents, they dishonored God, they did all of the bad stuff. But Isaiah is describing, in Isaiah 53, a person who is going to be sent by God who will take the punishment for them. Even though innocent, Isaiah says, this person is going to be treated as if he's guilty And because he's treated as he's guilty, other guilty people are going to be treated as if they're innocent. Um, Look just briefly at verses 5 and 6. This is all through the passage. He was pierced because of our rebellions and crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole. By his wounds we are healed. Like sheep, we all had wandered, each going its own way, but the Lord let fall on him all of our crimes. An innocent person who's suffering the punishment on behalf of all the guilty. I love verse 1 of chapter 53. Isaiah says, who can believe what we've heard? Who can believe what we've heard? Like, what is happening here is not justice, as anybody in the Old Testament world knows how to understand justice. So you can understand why everybody reading this passage is like, what is going on? Who is this person? Like, what is happening? Nothing is just about this at all. 
Well, the early Christians, as they began to look through their, their Old Testament story in light of what Jesus revealed about God, the early Christians like latched onto this passage and thought, aha, it has finally been revealed what Isaiah was talking about. Isaiah was talking about Jesus. Like, if, if all of ju- that justice is to God is crime and punishment, we are all in really big trouble. I mean, I feel like this, the last couple of weeks have made this feel a particularly appropriate and apparent to me as an American. Like, look around at your family, your friends, your neighbors, people around the globe where children are hungry and bombs are falling in our name. Can we really say that we've given others their due? Like, is there anyone here who's prepared to get up and say, I have behaved justly toward all the people in my life in the world? I mean, we've done things that are not okay, and we've not done things that are not okay. And like at a very basic level, justice demands acknowledgement of that fact. But, but God has desi- decided to take all of this stuff that we've done that we've not done and respond to it by not giving us what we deserve. Instead, in Jesus, God takes the burden of all that, that stuff that we've done on God's self, the burden of healing on God. Like, at a very kind of fundamental level, when we look at the cross, this thing we have at the front of the sanctuary every week, the cross is the place we see how horrifying, how awful injustice is. It's the place we call what is totally intolerable, totally intolerable, And it's also the place God takes the weight of all of our crimes and punishment on God and lets the rest of us go free. I mean, what kind of notion of justice is that? Like, what does justice mean to God? Um, Specifically, what does justice mean to the God revealed in Jesus in the context of sin or a wrong being done, one person harming another. Well, if we're going to ask what it means, like we have to start with what we've just clarified it doesn't mean. What justice does not mean to Jesus, it's very clear, is just crime and punishment. We see it on the cross God is not fundamentally interested in giving people what they deserve. Pain for pain and an evening of suffering, that is not God's investment in the world. That is not what justice means to God. Um, but we don't just see this in Jesus' death. We don't just see it on the cross. We even see it in his life. We have all of these stories from Jesus' ministry. Um, for example, when, when a woman who has committed adultery is brought to Jesus, and the people around him want to inflict the punishment that the law requires, which is stoning, and Jesus both fully acknowledges and names this woman has done something wrong, but he also does not demand the price of the wrong. Now, we see it even when Jesus is being crucified and there's this bandit hanging on the cross next to him. We, we often call this guy a thief, and he is a thief, but, but from what we know of, the, of these figures during the time, he, he was basically a road, an on-the-road bandit who was probably killing people in order to rob them, right? So don't just think like petty thief, think murderer, And this is a guy, Jesus looks at him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is not what this guy deserves. 
So, so if, if justice to Jesus is not just crime and punishment, then what is it? Like, what does justice actually require and demand? Well, as I kind of read through the ministry of Jesus and, and contemplate what he's saying and what he's doing, four things stand out to me as kind of crucial components of justice to Jesus. Um, number one, justice involves telling the truth and exposing things that are done in the darkness to light. Justice always, always, always involves truth-telling. I mean, you see this in Luke chapter 12, and Jesus says this. Jesus began to say to his disciples, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and what I mean is the mismatch between their hearts and their lives. Nothing is hidden that won't be revealed, and nothing is secret that won't be brought out into the open. Therefore, whatever you have said in the darkness will be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the rooms deep in the house will be announced from the rooftops. Jesus, you might pick up on, has very little tolerance for secrecy. Why? Because darkness is the place where distortion occurs. It's where wounds begin to fester. It's where stuff goes unhealed. For Jesus, part of the crucial work of God in bringing justice in the world is taking everything that happens in the night, in the dark, out into the light and saying, here's what it is. Not what you're saying about your life, but what you're actually doing. I mean, Jesus believed in naming things out loud, and you see him do it all through his ministry. Um, When he is having this conversation with a Samaritan woman, one of the first things he says to her is like, hey, you've had five husbands. Right? He doesn't give a big lecture about that. He doesn't heap judgment about it. But let's just name what it is. Right? Let's name the history that's here and what the story of your life has been. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, this comes off a little bit stronger often. Jesus says to the Pharisees, hey, you all are like tithing your mint. You're, you're dividing your herbs and giving God 10%, but you're not actually loving God or practicing justice. Let's say that out loud. Like you guys are not giving to the people around you what you owe them, and that's a problem. And Jesus even does it in the temple when he walks into the temple and he sees people being, you know, cheated out of their money for tremendous profits for the people in power. He stands up and he says as loud as he can, this is robbery and it's not okay. Jesus is a truth teller, a crucial component of justice. The, The foundational thing we owe each other is truth. Is living in the light alone, living in the light together. Truth is the the kind of base component of divine justice. Jesus says you can do it voluntarily or you can wait for God to pull it out, but everything's coming into the light, right? That's where it begins. Um, Second component of justice for Jesus. Um, Jesus is very clear that he believes his followers hold each other accountable. And part of what accountability in community assumes is that the community has the authority to define boundaries for what behavior is acceptable and unacceptable. Um, This comes up in Matthew 18, and you may have heard this passage before, but I don't know if you've ever thought of this as a justice passage. Um, Jesus says this, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and correct them when you're alone together. If they listen to you, then you've won over your brother or sister. Great. But if they don't listen to you, take one or two others so that every word may be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. 
If they still won't pay attention, report it to the church, the broader community. And if they won't pay attention even to the church, treat them as you would a Gentile and a tax collector. I assure you that whatever you all fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven, and whatever you all loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the community of his disciples, the Christian community, has the authority together to say a behavior is unacceptable when it harms other people. Now, it's really important to note here that these are plural statements, not singular. You individually do not have the authority to hold every person accountable, but the community together has the authority to say there are behaviors within the Christian community that are outside the bounds of a community of love. And it's not okay, it's not acceptable, and we're not going to allow it to occur here among us. A key part of justice for Jesus is the authority of the community to draw those boundaries around harmful behavior and say, not here. Not in God's community of love and justice. Third thing the justice requires is doing what you can to make a wrong right. One of the stories where this comes up really explicitly is the the story of this guy named Zacchaeus who's been making his living, um, getting rich, kind of fleecing his neighbors on their taxes as a tax collector. And when Jesus and Zacchaeus finally have a conversation, the outcome of it is this. Um, Luke 19. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, to Jesus, Look, Lord, I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone... I will repay them four times as much. Jesus responds to this by saying, today salvation has come to this household. This is where a lot of us, like we might know this in principle, we we get confused in practice. Sometimes we start thinking that like, basically making things right is just making an apology, being like, hey, my bad, and then expecting the other person to forgive us and just kind of move on. But a a crucial component of actual justice is going back behind you and doing what you can to make the wrong right. And this is really important because it's like the critical moment where Jesus-shaped justice is distinguished from Old Testament justice. Because Old Testament justice is about balancing pain, right? How much pain did you cause and let's even the scale by making you suffer an equal amount in return? That's Old Testament justice. What, what Jesus is suggesting is different. Like this is not evening the scales of pain. Because what happens when you evil, even the scales of pain is usually you just end up with more broken people, Right? Like, nothing gets better. Now you just have more people who are hurt and wounded. The justice of Jesus begins with the question, what is it going to take to make all the parties involved in this whole? The justice of Jesus starts with the question, what is it going to take to make all the parties involved here whole? Victims and perpetrators. Zacchaeus didn't need to suffer. Zacchaeus needed to understand that his actions had harmed other people, and he needed to take that seriously and do what it took to make those harms into new rights. Sometimes hearing the truth can be painful. Like, I'm not saying that pain isn't a part of justice. In fact, I think most of the time, like, bringing things into the light and hearing the way you've harmed other people and really facing it, that can be a painful experience. But the pain is not the point, right? In Jesus' justice, the pain is not the point. The point is the healing. The point is the making of things right within you. The point is 
writing the situation of the other person as much as you can. And that brings us to the the fourth and kind of final component, I think, of of Jesus' core conception of justice. If I'm saying that the point of justice is to make the people whole, victim and perpetrator, then you might be thinking, like, what about those situations where you just can't? Right? Like, this this is the deadly, the kind of horrifying truth about sin is sometimes sin breaks things it has no power to repair, right? Like sometimes things come apart that we don't know how to put back together. And this is where the kind of radical scandalous nature of Christian forgiveness comes in. It's funny because this actually comes up in Matthew chapter 18 after Jesus has just been talking about justice in the community and how you draw boundaries and what you do when somebody screws up. And somebody says, well, Jesus, how many times do we have to go through this process? Jesus, how many times do we have to forgive? Matthew 18, 21. Peter, it's always Peter, right? Telling the truth. Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Should I forgive them as many as seven times? Should I go through this process of making things right seven times, Jesus? And Jesus says, not seven times, but rather as many as 77 times. Right? In other words, um, seven in Judaism is like the perfect number, the whole complete number. Basically, Jesus is saying infinity, right? Jesus' point is that if you are going to sign on to his community, this community that is practicing a new kind of justice, you need to know going into that conversation that the journey of justice and wholeness is going to be long and slow. Like, people making it right once is not going to fix the problem, right? Like, the the journey of coming from a place of our current brokenness into wholeness is going to be long and slow and messy, And and if you want to join in that process in the community of Jesus, part of what you have to surrender from the outset is that kind of visceral human appetite for equal pain, right? That, that, That just has to go. Like, that doesn't have a place in the story of Jesus. You surrender that pain appetite, and instead you agree coming to Jesus that you are now going to participate with him in a costly process of telling the truth and rebuilding the things that have been broken, knowing that that process of truth-telling and rebuilding is going to cost both the victim and the perpetrator. Right? That's always going to be true. Like, this process of whole-making is going to cost everyone involved. And that's not because God doesn't take injustice seriously. And that's why it's so important to take the cross seriously. Like, on the cross, we see how seriously God takes it. I mean, God identifies fully with the victims of the deepest kind of injustice. But on the cross, God also creates a way forward that is bigger than matching death blows, bigger than scaling even pain. What the Christian community fundamentally is, it's a community of thieves, it's a community of bandits, it's a community of people who are kind of hanging there next to Jesus, receiving undeserved pardon, and learning to practice God's unique, world-changing justice of telling the truth and participating in each other's healing, even at great cost to ourselves. That's, that's what justice in the face of wrong looks like to God. And, and that's one of the places I think God's justice looks most strikingly different than justice as the world understands it. 
So just to kind of leave you today with one concrete challenge, whether what the injustice you are thinking of right now is, it involves you as the one who has done something wrong or you uh, as the one who's received the wrong, like no matter which end you're thinking on, I think the fundamental question is the same. I mean, what is the first step of telling the truth? Right? Wherever you fall in that, that kind of picture, what is your first step in telling the truth? And what is your part in paying the cost of healing for everyone? Right? Those are the questions that begin the journey of divine justice rather than human justice. Let's pray together. God, we recognize having this conversation about justice this morning that where we have experienced injustice, this conversation may be heavy and hard and painful. It's a, it's a natural thing. I think, I think even you, Jesus, understand that, that impulse when you are suffering, when the people you love are suffering, to want to even that suffering out. But God, we take this moment to remember we are so grateful and so blessed that that is not how you do justice. That what we can expect from you now and in the future is not a full payment of pain for pain. We pray that you would give us a deeper glimpse and understanding of the grace we are receiving so that that grace can flow more freely through us to others. Give us courage for truth-telling. Give us grit and boldness for the acts of costly reconciliation, of making the wrongs we've done right as much as we can. Bear with us the pain of the things that can't be undone, that can only be held within the wideness of your healing grace. Give us, your people, a vision for living a better story so that the world can know what's possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.